Disclaimer. I am a writer, not a trained historian. I am using the most up-to-date resources available to me at the time of publishing, but my accounts are told more for their narrative value, and some of the information I use may be from secondary, unconfirmed, or in some cases, even apocryphal sources. To be sure, these stories of outstanding men and women for history are meant to entertain you, and hopefully interest you enough to read more about them in the future. But what you choose to believe is entirely up to you. Sorry to keep you from hearing the episode this week any longer than you have to, but I wanted to add a second disclaimer. Today's subject did an extensive amount of traveling to places such as throughout Europe and Russia. Because of that, there's a lot of names that I am very bad at pronouncing, so if it is your mother tongue and you know that I've pronounced this name wrong, be nice. I do not know what I'm talking about. So, without further ado, enjoy the episode. Have you ever heard of the Philosopher's Stone? According to ancient science, this was a mystical element that made up many of the elements in the world around us. And it was a special element, one that no one actually knew existed, but if you could find it, you could turn base metals such as lead into more valuable metals such as silver or gold. Among other mystical abilities, this Philosopher's Stone was also said to be the origin of the Fountain of Youth. If you could just include it, in a medical concoction, you could forever be young. Believe it or not, many still put faith in this philosopher's stone even today. When you think about it, it might conjure up images in your mind of unknowable secrets and ancient knowledge. And in fact, secret societies and organizations have for ages claimed to be custodians of the knowledge of the philosopher's stone. They've believed to either be uh, curators of it, caretakers of it, or the knowledge, and that it's actually some kind of metaphor for something else. You may have heard of some of these societies, uh, people such as the Rosicrucians, the Freemasons, the Society of the Asiatic Brothers, the Knights of the Light, the Illuminati, the Order of the Templars, or the Theosophy Movement, and that's just to name a few. These societies have inspired the imagination and pop culture for generations upon generations. And they range from stories of the silly and humorous to the genuine spiritual movements that people have dedicated their lives to. Now, what would you say if I were to tell you that all of this was started by the same man? The same man is claimed to have been the starter of all those secret societies as well as others to be the one that finally discovered the Philosopher's Stone and can live forever. This man was known in his time as the Count of Saint-Germain, or as he became known in the courts of Europe, the man who would not die. Before we begin our deep, confusing dive into this man's life, I want to warn you to take everything I say here with a grain of salt, because I can't guarantee any of it is true. Possibly, maybe, allegedly, probably, these are words I'm going to be using a lot through this story, because while we know this man actually existed, we do not know much more. 
This is mostly due to the quirks of the man himself. He would never give you a straight answer when asked about himself personally. And when he would answer you, his claims would be completely out of the ordinary, to say the least. His intentionally cryptic statements about himself caused others to start rumors about him, which persisted and even started to become mistaken for fact. Also muddying the waters of things is the rumors that were intentionally spread about him. Some people were jealous of his influence over important people of his time, so they spread intentional lies, which were then believed and restated over and over until the common folk took it as fact. Another trouble we have in sussing out the story of how this man lived was because of what he wrote about himself, or more accurately, what he did not write about himself. In fact, we only know of two books that he wrote personally. The first of these publications is called La Tres Santa Triosophie, or The Most Holy Triosophia. It is written in code hieroglyphs, and Sanskrit all mixed in with the modern language of his time. Once translated, the contents of the book are so metaphorical uh, that many have interpreted it to mean different things. Rather, uh, they want it to fit some sort of religious code, or rather they're trying to fit some kind of alchemical process to it. They identify it differently. While we know that he wrote this book, though, unusually, he never actually cited himself as the author in the book. We just know he wrote it from the people around him. Now, the second book that he wrote is just the opposite of the first. It is, again, written in code, hieroglyph, Sanskrit, and needed to be decoded, but he accredits himself as the author this time. Strangely, though, he never actually gave the book a name. In fact, we get its title only from the unusual shape in which it was bound in a triangle. So it has come to be known as the, tri the Triangular Manuscript. And you can actually purchase both of these books today, if you can make anything of them. However, neither of these manuscripts actually discuss the Count himself. So this leaves what we know about him to just what other people who knew him wrote. And as we said, most people that knew him had some kind of agenda or another. So you can only believe what they say as far as you believe any politician that has an agenda. One final reason that we'll discuss that there's so much confusion surrounding the life of the Count is because of the views of religion and science in the time period in which he lived, as opposed to the views of religion and science now. Science, and the study of chemistry in particular, played a large role in the lives of these learned men from this time period, and the Count in particular, being known as an alchemist. That being said, science and religion were very much intertwined in that time. If you were to figure out some sort of new chemical process that looked impressive, it was likely to be mistaken for magic, maybe even heresy, and not a natural process that you discovered. I mean, just imagine what some of the scientific discoveries of our age would look like to someone from that time period. Can you imagine them looking at a TV and not accusing you of being a witch? Now, throw on top of that that many belief systems that have now adopted St. Germain as one of their influential figures, and what you get is something that looks more like some sort of magical mysteria than actually the facts betray. Now that we've established why we can't trust anything about this man's life, let us talk about what we do know about him. Well, maybe. To start, we are reasonably certain that his name was not the Count of St. Germain. 
He, in fact, used many aliases throughout his lifetime, and this is the one that got recorded and so stuck to the annals of history, and it's how we'll refer to him in this podcast, but just know that it's not his actual name. Believe it or not, there was actually many Count of St. Germains throughout Europe at the time when he lived, so it makes it very hard to point out who this man was, because to say that your name was the Count of St. Germain is to say your name is John Smith today. It's a fairly common name, and you could not pinpoint any one person with that name. We do know a little bit about his origins, even though we don't know much about his name, though. The leading theory, although with everything in this story, it's heavily disputed by many, is that he was a prince in exile. He was possibly the third son of Francis II Rakowski, King of Transylvania, and he may have been born between 1690 or 1691. When Transylvania was conquered by the Habsburg dynasty of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Francis fled with his two sons, which he claimed and were legitimate, but sent a third son in secret, one that possibly was his illegitimate son, to Italy, where he was then educated by the Medici clan. If you are a history buff, you probably recognize these names as some of the most influential people of their time periods. Now get used to that. The Count's story is an all-star-studded cast filled with name-dropping of all kinds of famous people that he met and interacted with, some of which he even called friends. And it's because of these famous people and what they wrote about him that we even know that he exists today. Now, if your head is swimming right now with all of these names and places and dates, and you're not a history buff, you don't know who they are, not to worry. You don't really need to know who they are to enjoy the story. I merely mention them to put everything into context and to show you just how this individual was so larger than life that he never actually communicated with anybody outside of the sphere of influence of wealthy people, the rulers and uh, the people that were influential in his day. So if I drop a name in this particular episode, it's likely because they were rich and powerful in some way. That's the only people he would hang out with. Back to our subject, though, we know that between his being educated by the Medicis in Italy and his showing up at the courts of Europe, a span of some 50 years, we know absolutely nothing about what happened. Uh, we know that he claimed to have visited India at some point in time in between all of this, but remember that whatever he said was usually exaggerated, and we know it likely was not true. He claims to have learned alchemy in India, and it's assumed that this is where he found the Philosopher's Stone, and he takes on this aura of having partaken of this Philosopher's Stone so that he could live forever. Now, I've talked about alchemy a little bit. We may know it today as chemistry, using chemicals and heat to turn one thing into another, in particular the pursuit of turning uh, lead into uh, gold or silver. Uh, he possibly found the Philosopher's Stone to do this. Now, this is not something he claims himself. Although he did claim to learn alchemy in India, he never actually showed anybody that he could turn anything into gold, and he never demonstrated this. Uh, we know that he may be able to do this simply because of rumors that were surrounding him. Remember, we talked about this earlier. People assumed he could turn base metals into gold and silver because he lived an opulent lifestyle. He was very free with his money. He appeared to be very wealthy, wearing nice clothes, having nice things. But he never actually had a job or a career. No one knew where his money came from. We can't even be sure that he was royalty. So where did his money come from? Nobody knows. 
The assumption is that he created it himself. He never even deposited into a bank account. One thing we know for sure, though, is that he really loved to party. While he may have been a mysterious person and added into this aura of Mysteria by not answering any questions about his past, he sure wanted to spend a lot of time at banquets and balls so that everybody around him would know just how accomplished and mysterious he really was. Despite the thrill of being at these parties, though, and all the reveling and drinking and overeating that was taking place around him, no one actually ever saw him eat there. Even though no one ever saw him eat, most people had reason to believe that he lived off of a diet of nothing but oatmeal. In his hobnobbing with the rich and famous, he actually got assigned several political missions. So in the midst of him carrying out these diplomatic and clandestine missions, he also did a fair bit of partying. Uh, with this partying and these missions, he traveled throughout the different countries of Europe, especially between France and England. Uh, he got around quite a bit. And in all of his travels, he would carry personal artifacts with him, some things that always accompanied him. But among the more odd were his instruments for alchemy. He had a complex lab uh, that he would travel with wherever he went. He would be staying in a room. He would set up this lab all around the room. It was very complex looking, uh, and here he claimed to be able to do his alchemical work. Largely, the work that he did was with dyes, being able to dye gemstones and fabrics and things of that nature. He claimed to be able to dye anything, uh, to be able to create new colors. And this, uh, while it's hard to understand today with the variety of fabrics and colors we have, was a big deal for his time period. It seemed almost magical, but it was not his passion. His passion was jewelry and gemstones in particular. He was fascinated by being able to study gemstones. Unlike being able to turn uh, lead into gold or anything like that, where he didn't actually claim that, he actually did claim to be able to manipulate gemstones. In particular, diamonds were his favorite. He said that he could melt diamonds down to a liquid form and then reform them in any shape you wanted, but without their flaws. This is something that was verified by several rulers, in particular in France. Uh, he supposedly did this in front of them, turning their gemstones into something that was worth double or triple what it was before. He showed off his work by wearing gemstones himself. Wherever he went, each finger wore a ring where he encrusted it with gemstones. His coats were all encrusted with gemstones, and especially his shoes. The buckles of his shoes were always encrusted with these gemstones, all of them made without flaws, supposedly in his laboratory. One thing he loved to do to ingratiate himself to wealthy people he did not know was to put on concerts for them. He reportedly could play like a virtuoso, impressing anybody that listened to him, and he loved to write his own stuff, mostly on the violin. He would go into a new court where there was people he did not know and volunteer to put on this concert. Uh, then he could hobnob and meet them for the first time. And to be fair, we do know that he was a prolific writer when it came to music. He wrote that we know of six multi-violin sonatas, seven violin solos, four English songs, and 42 Italian arias. And he would perform these for the rich and famous. If that didn't work and they were not impressed by his music, he was also an accomplished painter. 
He could paint apparently in various art styles, and he would use this to flatter his guests and patrons. Uh, he would paint pictures of them where they appeared more beautiful, more thin, more wealthy, and then present them with their portraits in order to befriend them. Now, if you weren't impressed enough by the feats I've already told you about, then let me go on to continue with his amazing pedigree and talking about the way that he spoke. He spoke in nine different languages, probably more, but nine that we know of. And in each of these languages, he spoke with such proficiency that when he was speaking to a native speaker, they thought that he was from their own country. Couple this with his amazing and easy charm, everybody just got along with him. Now, this is the extent of what we know about the Count of St. Germain. Now, I want to say no very, very loosely, because what we know, we don't know we know. We just think we know. I think. But the first actual account that we have of him doing anything is actually an arrest record from the 1740s. When he entered the service of King Louis XV of France, he was assigned as a diplomat to England. Now, if you're doing the math at home, we're in the 1740s now, and the 1690s is when he was born. That means the first written account of his life is when he was already in his 50s. And like I said, it's an arrest record. Here we get the first glimpse of just how cheeky he was when he would answer questions that were directed at him. He had been arrested in England because they suspected him for being a spy and not a diplomat. You have to remember that at England at this point in time, there was a rebellion known as the Jacobite Rebellion going on. That means that anybody that acted out of the ordinary from what a proper English gentleman should act was suspected of being a Jewish Jacobite spy. And of course, our favorite Count of St. Germain definitely acted out of the ordinary. He fit that bill perfectly. So being jumpy as they were, they arrested him as a Jacobite spy and interrogated him. Mind you, this is when it was legal and even accepted to torture people to get information out of them. But that wasn't the case with the Counts of St. Germain. He was able to wiggle his way out of this with his charm. In fact, I want to read to you a direct quote from Horace Walpole at the conclusion of his interrogation of the Count. And I'm not sure I can even state it better than he did. He was interrogating the Count of St. Germain, and this is what he had to say afterwards. And I quote, The other day they seized an odd man who goes by the name of Count St. Germain. He has been here these two years, and will not tell us who he is, or whence, but professes two wonderful things. The first, that he does not go by his right name, and the second, that he never had any dealings with any woman, nay, nor with any substitution. He sings, plays on the violin wonderfully, composes, is mad, and is not very sensible. He is called an Italian, a Spaniard, a Pole, a somebody that married a great fortune in Mexico, and ran away with her jewels to Constantinople. A priest, a fiddler, a vast nobleman, the Prince of Wales, has had unsatiated curiosity about him, but in vain. However, nothing has been made out against him. He is released. And what convinces me that he is not a gentleman stays here and talks of his being taken up for a spy. End quote. I don't think I could have come up with a better description of the Count of St. Germain than Mr. Walpole himself.
It took me a while to digest it, but when I did, I had a nice sensible chuckle. Basically, if you were to boil down what he said and simplify it into modern English, he's saying, he's not a spy, but I don't like him. I know he's never had sex, and he's crazy. Literally, this count was released because they had nothing on him for being a spy. They knew he was lying to them, but they didn't think he was a spy. And instead of running away to victory like any normal sane person, he sits there in custody voluntarily and tells them about just how odd he really is. While his behavior was indeed odd, personality-wise, he was apparently a real charmer. He obviously had charmed his interrogator, whose job it was to be ornery. This was actually a running theme in his life. No matter who he encountered, everybody loved him. He would get into trouble and charm his way out of it. He was able to intelligently converse with anyone, no matter what their interests were, no matter the subject. He seemed to have a limitless knowledge base of it and an easy charm. At one point in time, he demonstrated this by starting a rumor that even persists to this day. While at a soiree of Madame de Pompadour, a famous and wealthy partier in France, he told her that he was in fact very old, saying that he was someone that knew her in childhood. Of course, she was a bit skeptical of this claim, but he went on to converse with her and by the end of the conversation had thoroughly convinced her that he was in fact this person she knew from childhood and had not aged a day. Very few people had anything bad to say about him. Even the famous French philosopher Voltaire, who was an acquaintance of his, merely said that he was the wonder man of Europe, who does not die and knows everything. Now, rather he meant that sarcastically, or rather he meant it honestly, and out of a hard case of jealousy, that I'll let you decide. That's up for debate. But, again, it did demonstrate how people perceived him. Similarly, the famous philanderer Giacomo Casanova wrote this in his personal jur journal after dinner with the Count. This extraordinary man, intended by nature to be the king of impostors and quacks, would say in an easy assured manner that he was 300 years old, that he knew the secret of the universal medicine, that he possessed a mastery over nature, and that he could melt diamonds, professing himself capable of forming out of 10 or 12 small diamonds, one large one of the finest water without any loss of weight. All this, he said, was a mere trifle to him. Notwithstanding his boastings, his barefaced lies, and his manful eccentricities, I cannot say I thought him offensive. In spite of my knowledge of what he was, and in spite of my own feelings, I thought him an astonishing man, as he was always astonishing to me. End quote. Yes, even this famous philanderer, who may have considered him a rival for how he could woo the ladies with how interesting he was, held deep admiration for him. He viewed him as astonishing while simultaneously believing that he was completely full of it. As we alluded to in those quotes, one of his favorite claims about himself was that he was very old and would not die because of his alchemy. He allegedly was able to thoroughly convince many of this, not just Madame Pompadour. Some of people even believe it down to this day. The 1740s through the 1750s were definitely his heyday in Europe. Throughout this time, he grew in fame and influence, especially in the French court. King Louis XV continued to employ him, supposedly sending him on countless clandestine missions over the years. 
It was this closeness to the king, though, that finally ushered in the next chapter of his life. Many people were his rivals in the French court because they were jealous and nervous of the influence that he had over the king. So they began subtly slandering him. They claimed that he was an English spy, sent to spy on the French court and reveal all their secrets. Now, while it's likely that his BFF Louis did not believe this at all, it's also true that he was not willing to stick his neck out for his favorite charmer and put himself at risk, so he allowed public favor to shift against his favorite charmer. In fear of his life, the Count packed up and fled to Russia. Now, do you think that this sudden change of fortunes suddenly stopped him from being super awesome all the time? Not for one pea-picking minute. In fact, it didn't even keep him out of politics. It's now the 1760s, and he almost immediately embroils himself in Russian politics. Of course, everything he did while in Russia was super secret, and it was a really difficult time in Russian politics. There was a power struggle going on between Tsar Peter III and Catherine II, and he embroils himself in this conflict, taking Catherine's side in a conspiracy to overthrow Tsar Peter. This led eventually to a major military confrontation between the two of these contested leaders, and in deviation from what he's normally famous for, in other words, being super mysterious and super awesome at parties, he actually takes an active role in the defeat of Peter by directly taking control of Catherine's forces and leading them into a decisive victory over Tsar Peter. However, after his victory, he doesn't stay in Russia forever. For unknown reasons, he finally comes back to more mainstream Europe and settles in Germany in 1779, where he meets a German prince by the name of Charles Hesse Castle. These two apparently bonded quickly over a shared interest in both alchemy and mysticism, and the prince set him up with a large lab free of charge to him where he could work freely with his jewels and his dyes. And it's actually because of this close friendship that the prince had with the count that we have even any hints about what his childhood was actually like. According to Charles, the Count confided in him before his death about what his true identity was. Now, I know if you're anything like me, this is super suspect. It's awfully convenient that he only ever bonded with one man late in his life, and this man just happened to be the only person that knows the story of this super famous person, and he could tell this at dinner parties. But that is what we have, so it's what we have to work with. It was at this court in 1784 that we finally have a record of the Count's death. If Prince Charles can be believed, at the time of his death, he would have been in his 90s. This is a claim that would have been amazing for someone that lived at the time period of the 1780s. But his body and belongings went to the prince, who tried to find his next of kin to give them to. But what he found, supposedly, was that the count only had a small amount of German money, far from the fortune that most assumed he had, a few of his manuscripts. He had no bank accounts, but he did have just a little bit of his equipment. One thing that was conspicuously missing was his violin, though, 
something he kept with him at all times, one of those items he traveled with. So what happened to the Count's money, or his violin, or his other personal effects? We'll likely never know. No one ever came to claim these items, and they've since been lost to history. Now, were this a normal mortal human being, this would be the end of my story. But those claims that he never dies still persist today, and they've come all the way down to the 2000s, hundreds of years later. Since his death, every so many years, someone claims to see the Count of St. Germain. Now, I don't mean that they see some weird ghostly figure that they think is St. Germain. No, they have a very clear description of what he looks like, and they say they see him in flesh and blood like a person. And he always seems to be about 45 years old, and he shares his wisdom and his claims very freely. This has led to him being a prominent figure to many New Age religions today. And many of them claim that he is actually their founder or an active participant in a lot of the secret societies that we mentioned at the top of this episode. Because of these claims, uh, there's a lot of conspiracy theories surrounding the Count. I can't really go into all of them. I would be here all day, and no one wants to listen to a podcast that's longer than 45 minutes anyway. But just as an example, one of the theories is that he found the Philosopher's Stone while he was the builder of Solomon's Temple. This means that he's the individual who is claimed to have started the Knights Templar and the Freemasons, which exist down today. Now, the Freemasons, who still claim that he's an important part of their mythos, were also instrumental in the creating of the United States. So if he is ageless and he was the one that built Solomon's Temple, he was also instrumental in building the United States of America. This has led many to believe that he is a symbol for freedom wherever he goes. And this is just one of the many theories. Other theories hold that he was the ruler of Atlantis and escaped shortly before it was uh, raised down below the sea, cursed to live forever through the ages. Another is that he was involved in the death of Jesus and that because of his not stopping the event, he is now cursed to wander the earth forever, ageless. There is all kinds of theories about him. So what is the truth? Who was the Count of St. Germain? Was he a banished prince who turned into a scientist ahead of his time? Or was he a mystic that had ascended to a higher plane of existence with the help of the Philosopher's Stone? If you're asking for my personal opinion, I tend to be a skeptic. While the fanciful part of my brain gets excited by the possibility of an ageless being trolling mankind occasionally, the logical part of my brain then shoots it in the face with a 45. What I would like to imagine is that he was one of the world's greatest con men and gone down in history because of his wonderful lying. But hey, that's just me. One thing's for sure, even without all the fantastical elements of his life, knowing so many famous people, making so much music, living into his 90s in the 1700s, having your influence carry hundreds of years past your own death, possible death, I should say, is quite a feat for any man. Who knows? If the stories about him are true, maybe I'll just ask him myself. Thank you so much for tuning in to Larger Than Life for this episode. If you have anyone that you would like me to cover that may be a good fit for the podcast in the future, feel free to send me a message at anchor.com under my podcast page, Larger Than Life. There you can leave me comments. You can also support the show if that's something you desire. Until next time, Quinn McFadden, signing off.